0: Welcome back, everybody. Hi, Justin. Hey, Lindsay. We've got this new mic set up. We're like directly facing each other. I know other. it's
1: been a while. Like we reconfigured the room, and now I'm I can look you in the
0: eye this time. It's a stare off now. Yeah. But I'm the one that's watching the TV. Yeah. You're not. Yeah. So. I don't get to see the TV behind me. Sorry. That's we sh- okay. We should do a James Cameron technique and put a mirror behind me. We could and do you that. You could watch it behind me. We yeah. could
1: do that. We'll complicate things later.
0: Perfect. Speaking of James Cameron, um, this is our third Cameron film that we're going to be talking about?
1: Yeah, we did Terminator, and we did The Abyss, and now Aliens, and we did do Alien. It's true. So we're trying not to be redundant here. If you've heard those episodes, there might be a little bit of crossover, but we're going to try. I've referenced the old episodes a little bit to make sure we don't repeat ourselves too much.
0: Yeah, there's enough about Aliens that we don't even need to retread yeah. any any of that.
1: I'm pretty excited. You know, we we sprinkle in these big huge hits from the 80s and this is probably one of the biggest ones. At least for me, one of my most loved movies of the 80s. And we we talk about this a lot recently of like movies that have stood the test of time and they feel modern even though they're, you know, going on 30 something years old and man, Aliens to me is like It is very slick. This is one of those movies where I wish I could have been someone who was, like, of age to see this in the theater. I was a kid when this came out. But I just imagine that this movie would— You know, I've read some uh, comments of people that said that, you know, they did see this in its original release and said, you know, they were just completely floored, like, kind of frazzled coming out of the theater because this movie is so intense. And it really is. This is one of the more intense movies that I— that I think I've seen um, and it does a good job of carrying over the story of the original Alien but it's its own movie and I think a lot of that almost all of it um, is because of Cameron
0: and Cameron loved the original 1979 Ridley Scott Alien movie it, it is a feat by itself everything about that film is uh, a standalone story and and vibe and tone everything is Its own thing, especially when you compare it to the sequel. And I think that that's one of the things that makes the sequel so wonderful and is a continuation of the main character Ripley. Um, It is a completely different like vibe. Everything about it, like the first Alien, is about you know kind of like being alone and isolated, and it's very haunting and creepy. Like I think of the first Alien movie as a horror film. It's a horror science fiction. This one is not set up the same way, and it's rare in a franchise uh, where you can say that the sequel is as good or at least on the same footing as what came before it. Aliens, definitely up there.
1: And we'll get into a lot of this in a little bit here, but just in terms of sequels, I mean, this has always been talked about as being one of the best sequels of all time. And I I agree with that 100%. Um, But I also think this was at a time where um, we, they weren't making sequels out of just everything mm-hmm. you know now if a movie has a good opening weekend there, there's there's a story usually an article comes out like three weeks later it says oh, they're already thinking about you know the sequel and it's like every a sequel is made to anything now even if it's wanted or not you know Alien was a big movie it was a movie that um, a lot of people loved It was kind of groundbreaking and there had been some time had surpassed since it came out and, you know there was about six years um, They didn't just crank. Aliens out right away. So there was a lot of thought and time put into it. And we'll get into a lot of that here. We'll get into Cameron coming on board, writing this script. We've talked about this before in our Cameron episodes where uh, you don't really think of James Cameron as much of a script writer, but he really did, you know, write all of his movies pretty much. And, you know, you can look at this movie and think it's a big shoot em up action movie, but there's a lot of depth to the characters and he adds a lot of. I think re real life situations and then, you know, adds a lot of like the bureaucratic stuff of the government and how things happen and makes it very clear and very quick moving and so we're not caught up in like sort of a unclear story that we don't know what's going on and you have to watch it like 50 times to figure out what's happening.
0: Another thing with Cameron that it's easy to forget is that the guy's an artist, and there's a reason, you know, he starts out with something like Terminator and then moves on to Aliens. Both of these films are high visual concepts and they're pretty much I mean, he gave a lot of direction to everyone that's involved in in special effects and just the story and overall idea. And to visualize two epic movies like this, um, it's kind of like you're you're functioning on a different level, and I I think not every writer director can do that and i don't think every you know that's not how it should be it's not how everybody is it's it's just i think one aspect that makes james cameron um i never thought i would be like someone that's like james cameron's awesome you <laughs> know but i mean he 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 functions on a different level and um is a quirky some would say difficult to get along with person but i think when you are kind of like Someone on the fringes a little bit. It makes sense that you're maybe can be a little difficult sometimes.
1: Yeah. With every episode that we've done <laughs> on Cameron, I've, my appreciation level of him grows. Yeah. Yeah you know exponentially and he, he really has become one of my favorite filmmakers and I don't and I, I was the same way it's like James Cameron you know I think because think
0: he, he comes off like really lofty sometimes yeah and you're like,
1: yeah and, come on man but you know and, and I think too because his last two films are sort of these big you know Titanic and Avatar but like yeah. he he had such a, an amazing run here with the 80s and the 90s and we're going to get into a lot of uh aliens talk the making of production stories we'll get into a little bit about the special effects and our favorite thing to talk about is the cast and uh, this is another one of our favorites here an ensemble piece uh, led by really strong performances
0: we're also trying to um or at least i am secretly i will not a secret anymore i'm hoping that throughout the this entire run of the podcast that we're going to talk about every sigourney weaver movie ever made that's really what i'm gunning for
1: That's when you tap out, you like officially, (laughs) you you hand me a resignation once uh, we've run out of Sigourney Weaver movies.
0: Well, we done heartbreakers. I'm out. Of course, yes, we're going to talk about the cast. We'll talk about the music and uh, release reception like we always do. I'd like to get into talking... Just a little bit, maybe when we wrap everything up on maybe our thoughts on Alien Three and Resurrection, and there's a lot of uh, difficulties during the production and even into post-production. So stick with us through this episode because it's a real, it's a real saga.
1: So plenty of aliens talk. Then we'll get into our picks of the week. I, uh, as always, had a difficult time. <laughs> just.
0: You changed uh, your mind a few times uh, again. I always
1: do. I don't know what's. I, I, I'm i like a, someone that's like flipping <laughs> channels like constantly, and I just spend about three hours um, never landing on the movie, and I'm just like up half the night just like trying to decide on something. Yeah, one and, night
0: you sent me like four different options. Yeah, I'm like, just pick one, man. I well, don't I care. Did.
1: I did. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Sometimes I need you to just like just freaking pick a movie. Um, and I did. And I did. I landed on which is like the last movie I thought that I'd use for my pick of the week, but Rambo First Blood Part 2 oh. co-written by Cameron, uh, who wrote it you know, when he was in the middle of writing Terminator and Aliens. And uh, I hadn't seen it since I was probably 12 or 13. And man, I, I can't wait to talk about it. I was really, really surprised at my reaction to that movie.
0: Ooh, I'm anxious to hear about this. I've, I saw all of the Rambo movies when I was a kid, but it's probably been... Since I was younger than twelve, I think since I've seen mm-hmm. any of them.
1: Now is the time to get back in the Rambo. I'm I, telling you.
0: I think I have to. Yeah. Another thing is Rambo always looked like my brother to me, yeah. so it was it was it was a different uh, experience for and me. And your
1: brother was like cut and got his body fat down to two percent. <laughs> I don't
0: know if he I don't know if he'd say that today, yeah. but certainly when he was sixteen, yes.
1: Yeah. And what was your pick of the week?
0: I went with a deep cut. I I think it's a deep cut anyway for Sigourney Weaver. A movie that I found when I worked at a video rental, and I'm like, I've never seen this. What's what the heck's this about? Um, it's called Death and the Maiden. If you like Sigourney Weaver's intensity, this movie is nothing but that.
1: You've been on a real tear here doing pics of the week of movies that I've never seen.
0: Well, there was that, and her other one, Year of Living Dangerously. Yeah, yeah.
1: I'm not. I'm not <laughs> as. Uh, I'm not as hip to Sigourney Weaver's earlier works as you are.
0: I grew up with her, man. Yeah. It's.
1: Well, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to catch up. I'm going to catch up. This I, I looked up Death and the Maiden. It looks really interesting. Um, I think I, it was probably like too adult-oriented when it came out it's for so me. So adult-oriented. To, yeah, but um, I look forward to hearing about that. Oof. Uh, we'll round things out with our Murray moment. But before we get into our first clip of Aliens, Lindsay, can you give us your interpretation of what the hell this movie is about?
0: So you guys ever heard of what an alien is? It's like a thing from another planet. It's kind of like that. The first
1: movie's about one alien. <laughs> this one's about a handful of them.
0: Just a handful. You can yep. them in your hand. Well, in this sequel to the highly revered science fiction horror classic Alien, we rejoin Lieutenant Ellen Ripley, who, after she narrowly escaped her last run-in with a vicious alien entity, then she blasts herself off into space, into hypersleep. She'd hoped that she'd be found by anyone other than the beast- That she just battled. And she's found all right, even by a company ship for whom she worked. Except it's 57 years later. I mean, that's a rough one for anybody. Times have changed, and no one at the company believes the horrors that she lived through. That is, until contact is lost with the now colonized planet from which Ripley had previously escaped. She's the only one who lived to tell what happened. And now, flanked by a motley crew of marines and a giant arsenal of firepower, Ripley's convinced to help explore what happened to this now incommunicado colony. She's battled one of these massively terrifying alien creatures before, but the reason this movie is called Aliens and not Alien 2, well, there's a reason for that.
1: I'm looking forward to finding out the reason behind that.
0: Did I not spell it out pretty clearly?
1: (laughs) Thank you for that. Of course. Of course. Well, let's go to our first clip. We'll come back. We'll talk about some aliens.
0: I say we grease
1: this rat fuck son of a bitch right now. just doesn't make any goddamn sense. He figured that he could get an alien back through quarantine. If one of us was impregnated. Whatever you call it. And then frozen for the trip
0: home. Nobody would know about the embryos we were carrying. Me and Newt. Wait a minute
1: now. We'd all know.
0: Yes, the only way he could do it is if he sabotaged certain freezers on the way home, namely yours.
1: Then he could jettison the bodies and make up any story he liked. Fuck! He's dead. You dog me, pal. This is so... Nuts. I mean, listen. Listen to what you're saying. It's paranoid delusion. How, it's really sad.
0: It's pathetic. You know, Burke, I don't know which species is worse. You don't see them fucking each other over for a goddamn percentage.
1: All right, we waste him. No offense. No! He's got to go back.
0: They cut the power.
1: What do you mean, they cut the power? How could they cut the power, man? They're animals. I want you too with trackers checking the corners. Move!
0: Gorman, watch Burke. Okay, I got him. Newt, stay close. I'll go to the side. You do that, man.
1: So like I was saying at the top of the episode... Sequels are are these days. It's just like they crank them out. You know, like we're up to. We just mean you recently saw Scream Five. You <laughs> yeah. know, it was like the latest sequel that we yeah. saw, and movies that just don't even seem like they need a three and four and five. But Alien was a huge success, and there was an interest in doing a sequel to that. Um, but there was a lot of uh, red tape, a lot of legal battles over profits at 20th Century Fox. That really stretched out, and by the time all that got cleared up, it was 1983, and that's a big length of time in Hollywood years. By 83, interest was sort of dwindling, but it still seemed like a very profitable move to make a sequel to Alien. Original producer of Alien, David Giler, was approached on the 20th Century Fox lot in 83. Was asked, you know, if he had an idea for a sequel to Aliens, and he got together with Walter Hill, who also produced Alien. And they had an idea of a quick pitch that was uh, Southern Comfort, which was a movie that Walter Hill had just directed, meets The Magnificent Seven. And I love Southern Comfort. Uh, the, yeah, so that's, do that's I. a pretty yeah. that's a pretty good pitch there. Yeah, um, pretty good combination. That got uh, the studio a little bit excited, and. At this point in time, you know, from the research that we found, I didn't really hear too much about Ridley Scott coming up in the conversation of getting him to direct a sequel to Aliens. But it's there that James Cameron enters the conversation about um, looking for somebody new to to take over the reins of the sequel to Alien.
0: But that's not to say he was initially thought of as the director at all. He was approached by David Geiler, who had just gotten a hold of the Terminator script. And this is before Terminator went into production, very soon before it went into production. But he saw the script, thought it was incredible, and got one of his development executives to contact Cameron, see if Cameron had any interest or wanted to talk to him about maybe writing the script for Aliens. So Cameron is totally stoked at the idea of writing a possible sequel to Alien. He meets with Geiler and wrote pretty much of a half draft kind of treatment, 40, 50 pages um, in just three days and turned that in around late 83. Why it was kind of easy for Cameron to crank out the story was that he had um, a pre-existing idea. He had this story called Mother already in his arsenal. And it's not an exact replica of Aliens, but it did have to do with an alien space station kind of thing and even included the power loader that we see in uh, one of the climactic scenes eventually in Aliens. But most importantly, the one thematic element that was included in this story called Mother was that it was involving two mothers who were defending their children. And wow, like what a strong, intense story like that would be. I don't know too much about it, but just you know, taking these little nuggets and putting it into the continuation of the story of Alien, um, this was always something that was like a running theme throughout this movie. And so to make that such a big part in the sequel made total sense. You drop in Ripley, throw in some Marines. Let's take this a step beyond horror and make it more into an action film. And you've got what sounds like could be a really explosive sequel. So Cameron turns in this treatment to David Geiler and Walter Hill They love the idea and think that this is the direction that they want to move forward with. So they authorize Cameron to go ahead with the script. Now, the same day, this is wild, the same day, Cameron's told that he has the opportunity to write First Blood Part 2 and also needs to get moving on Terminator. He's got to do some rewrites on that and thinks okay, Aliens is a huge opportunity for me. I can't blow this, but I want to do First Blood Part 2. I have to do Terminator. What am I going to do? And Geiler and Hill are like, okay, you have to do what you have to do. Aliens has already been on hold for a long while. We're still in the preliminary development process. Do what you need to do. So in three months, Cameron really just shows what a true brilliant psycho he is and does the math on all three of these movies and figures, okay, they're all going to be two hours, going to be 120 pages each on these scripts, figures out how many pages he needs to write per day, per hour. And when you got a brain like this, I mean, you got to admire that. I, 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 I strive to have that sort of brain and I admire it, but man, to have the dedication and confidence in yourself to go, I'm going to turn in these three massive scripts that my entire career is contingent upon i'm I'm gonna do it there's no question it's just it's insane
1: yeah such a maniac i mean to to (laughs) take on three scripts you ultimately end up writing three scripts in one year that are all these huge like landmark like smash box office movies just goes to show like what a driven guy uh cameron was especially in the 80s here
0: So Cameron's off to shoot Terminator, and Fox agrees to wait until Terminator's done before proceeding with Aliens. And in the meantime, David Geiler approaches Fox and says, what do you think about Cameron being the director for Aliens? And they kind of balk at it. They're like, what, he's done Piranha 2, and we don't even know if Terminator's going to be a success or not. Let's see how Terminator turns out. Obviously, let's flash forward a year. Terminator is a success. It goes over very well, and this is a huge turning point for Cameron and his uh, producing partner, collaborative, creative partner, since they were at the Roger Corman's film school, his partner, Gail Ann Hurd. She was Cameron's producer on Terminator and was with him for many years um, afterwards, just collaborative partner, and would eventually jump on board with Aliens. And, you know, in the mid-'80s, it's not like uh, it was across the board that people... Didn't really respect women, but, you know, uh, Fox didn't necessarily think that this no-name woman who's produced a couple of pieces could produce a giant movie like Aliens. So James Cameron says, I have a producer. Perfect. You need that? Ann Heard. She's my collaborative partner. And Heard uh, has said numerous times that Fox said to her, how can a little girl like you produce a movie like this? And I don't know how many out there have, have dealt with such a demeaning situation, but just imagine the high-pressure moment of that of trying to hold your composure and just going, why don't you just go ahead and check my references, and then we'll talk after that. As of early 1985, Cameron finishes the script for Fox and turns it in, and Fox takes a look at this and thinks, oh, this budget's going to be a little out of control, and overestimates the budget to be around $32 million. Gayle Heard Hurd is like, there's no way it's going to be that much. We can get this down. I mean, Hurd and Cameron come from old school, you know, filmmaking where you are shooting on a shoestring budget. And they've got um, a bright idea on how to get that budget down.
1: Yeah, at the time, it seemed like a good idea for them. I don't know if that was, uh, in retrospect, the best thing that they did for the production. <laughs> but um, at the time, but they got the bright idea to shoot in Britain at Pinewood Studios um, because of the tax credits, you know, the government, you know, if you shoot it there, they'll fund part of your project. So they pitched the idea of the Fox, well, we could shoot it in Britain, you know, we can bring the budget down, we can get more bang for our buck. And that seemed like a good idea. Um, things worked a little bit differently there. It meant that um, they were going to have to use a British crew that was already put together for them. And there was going to be a lot of personality differences and different work ethics, but they weren't worried about that at the time. At the time they were just like we need to get this budget down so that we can get the green light from Fox to start shooting.
0: All right, so they've got the budget worked out, but then maybe even I don't know, just as equal as a terrible hurdle to jump over. Fox says to Cameron, "So um this whole Ripley thing in the script, do we do we really need Ripley in here?" And Cameron has written this entire script literally with a picture of Sigourney Weaver by him like the whole time. I don't know how much, I don't know if it's an exaggeration, but I kind of believe it actually. And Cameron and Heard are like, yes, of course. Like she is on every page. She is alien. There's, there's no continuation of the story without Ripley. And they refuse to budge on that one. So Fox is still kind of putting the brakes on this. Cameron and Hurd are not moving at all either and Cameron kinda goes behind everybody's back and gets the script to Sigourney, who is in England at the time, um, shooting the movie Half Moon Street. In that little part of time, Sigourney's getting the script and Heard and Cameron, who are also in a relationship, I don't think we said that initially, but they say, Look, Fox, we're gonna go get married, we're gonna have our honeymoon, and by the time we get back, this needs to be figured out or we're going to take this and go somewhere else but there is no way in hell we're proceeding without Sigourney Weaver's involvement in this.
1: And yeah, that really just shows how little Fox like thought of Sigourney Weaver as being a big part of what made the movie work. And Sigourney Weaver I think was a little peeved like that uh, it was like this far along and (laughs) that no one, like Fox, no one had contacted her other than James Cameron, who didn't have full support of Fox to begin with. But she did uh, end up uh, getting a pretty good deal. She got a million dollars, which doesn't sound like a lot for a, a starring role in a big, huge movie that's already starting the franchise. But at the time, and also being a woman, that was a pretty big payday. So that ended up working out. And thankfully, Cameron and Galen heard stood their ground because I don't know that the movie would have been as interesting without her character. And I think she's the main reason why aliens work so well. And we'll talk about that a little bit in the next discussion. But thankfully Fox came around and there was this you know good relationship between uh, Cameron and Sigourney Weaver, Sigourney Weaver really responded to the script, and she did have some, you know, things to work out with Cameron because she knew, she knew this character really well, um, inside and out. And Cameron was, you know, trying to have her character be more progressive in the next movie, but also remain the same in some ways. Once that was worked out with Sigourney Weaver, the next step was like, we need to get ourselves to Britain, get uh, set up with the crew, and the big big hurdle is. Uh, Trying to figure out how they're going to um, do all these special effects because it was a very effects-heavy script that had more aliens in it and uh, a more uh, in a you know bigger pumped-up action sequences. So at this point, Terminator had come out. It was a moderate success at the the box office, but really showed James Cameron as a visionary filmmaker, a writer-director, someone who was comfortable with special effects, someone who had a very keen visual style and so 20th Century Fox was a little bit more comfortable they were also glad that him and Gail Ann Hurd had figured out a way to trim the budget down so Cameron gets to England and Terminator hadn't come out overseas yet so no one knew who Cameron was the British system was very different crews worked for the studios you know they're just looking as this like another movie is coming to the studio um they didn't know who james cameron was they knew ridley scott they knew uh, some of the crew had worked on alien they had a very different structure than hollywood you know you you didn't just uh jump into the director's chair right away you know generally you were an older person who had worked on crews for a while and then finally you know it's like you get to go ahead to to make your first movie after you've done all this stuff cameron didn't really have a very big resume so the british crew has this Uh, American coming in with his American producer wife which you know immediately there was all these I think uh accusations thrown around I'm like
0: you're not you're you're just his wife you're not really who's really behind this so
1: the the crew immediately didn't respect Cameron they didn't respect Gail Ann Hurt as the producer and 20th Century Fox doesn't really have a whole lot of muscle to help because they're all the way overseas so there's not really anybody there um that's you know holding Cameron up thankfully he did have Galen heard because I don't think Cameron has any issues with his confidence but it did help to have Ann heard a producer who's backing all his decisions and who's trying to convince the crew to work with him because right away they're at each other's throats. James Cameron was like very driven. You know, he was expecting people to do what they do in America and it's like work every single day, work 16 hour days on the movie. He hadn't heard of tea time and we're all, we're going to shut down everything so that they can wheel in the cart and everybody has tea and they're all like relaxing for like 15 or 20 minutes. Cameron thought, well, if I show the crew Terminator, you know, it hasn't come out over here yet. Maybe that will convince them that I actually know what I'm doing and that I can make a really good movie. And so he set up a screening, a private screening for the crew to come to see Terminator. Um, and unfortunately nobody showed up, which is, is just, <laughs> it's man, awful. I mean, that's just, that's so awkward and horrible. And so, uh, yeah, things did not get off on the right foot here. Uh it's very similar to what we talked about in the Godfather where Coppola just like didn't have the confidence of the studio, didn't have the confidence of the crew, and just seemed like every single day was like another challenge. But I don't think that as many directors have the gumption and the wherewithal that Cameron does to just kind of like compartmentalize all the hate that you're getting from people and all the uh um uncertainty that people have in you and just focus on what's ahead and say you know what i really want to do is i i I have a very specific idea of what i want to execute here and we need to do it like no matter what it takes and you're with me or you're out and that of course isn't the best angle to take you know when you're trying to win people over but it seemed like from the get-go um, Cameron and Gail Heard weren't making any friends. So they, they, you know, we're just like, we have to go for the throat if we're gonna, if we're going to get this done. Otherwise this thing's going to like just spiral out of control very quickly, which it sort of did. Now in any given movie, the relationship between the director and the actors, uh, generally is the most important, you know, that needs to be functioning and they need to be on the same page, but is equally strong would be the relationship between the director and the director of photography, especially if you're a director who has a specific vision on how you want your movie to look. James Cameron is very specific. He is the kind of person that would grab a camera and set things up and this is how I want it to look and is sketching out ideas and has a very uh, keen sense on how he wants things to be lit and look. And his relationship with the cinematographer on Aliens was immediately just sour. Um, Dick Bush, the cinematographer, just did not like Cameron's approach. He didn't like his ideas. Um, Cameron wanted a very dark look for Aliens. It seemed like every time Cameron would try to ask for something, Dick Bush would almost do the exact opposite. You can guess that after (laughs) going that route for about a week or so, um, they were at each other's throats.
0: And Dick Bush even said from the get-go to Gail Ann Hurd when he saw the production schedule, there really weren't any days off. It was pretty cutthroat. He just said, you know what, the schedule's not going to work for me. It's too much, and I have no intention of making it work. That should have been a giant red flag right at the beginning that uh, Dick Bush is going to have a problem with uh, with everything before yeah, they like, even start production. Yeah,
1: your schedule doesn't work with me. <laughs> what?
0: And going back to the idea of this being at Pinewood Studios, you have a built-in crew. Some of these people, this is a 9-to-5 or, you know, 8-to-10 hour job. And they're, they're not caring what they're really working on. It's just, it's a job. I think there was maybe a bit of that. But I think even more with Dick Bush, it sounded like he kind of wanted to be a problem in hopes that since, you know, Cameron really wasn't anyone, no one really respected him or gave a crap what he'd worked on before Thought that, well, if this guy throws a fit, you know, I might be the next guy that's going to direct Aliens. Whatever his reasoning behind it, when you're the DP going against your director, it's uh, not going to last very long. So as you could guess, he was fired. He was uh, replaced with Adrian Biddle, and this was uh, Biddle's first feature film. He had previously worked with Tony and Ridley Scott's commercial production company. So kind of had a flavor of Alien under his belt.
1: And crude on the original Alien as Mm -hmm. well.
0: And you might think that firing the director of photography might get some of the crew to think, okay, we all need to get in line, make sure that this ship is righted and we can get through this. Um, No, that's not what happened. Uh, The next thorn in the side of this production was the first assistant director, David Cracknell. And I mean, the first AD, that's that's a pretty high up position to be having a problem with the director and, and trajectory of the film. Cracknell kind of served as the voice of the crew. And I don't think um, instead of being a uh, person to communicate between the crew and the director was someone that was kind of poking and, and and not helping anything to do with the production, even talking inappropriately to Cameron, um, even Lance Hendrickson, who plays Bishop, kind of like put got a little handsy with him a little bit. And Hendrickson was like, you don't need to be touching me like that, you know. Um, going along with that, I think that there's some type of, not a language barrier, but maybe a how people interact with each other, how British folks or how British crew interacts um, with each other versus Americans, that there might just be some things that are lost in translation that... Maybe Cracknell didn't mean something that was offensive and it's it's taken a different way. But however it is, the bridge of communication was breaking down with Cracknell. He was known to repeatedly call Cameron uh, Govna, like talking down to him, like, sure, you're going to tell me to do something. I'm going to talk down to you like you don't really deserve the position that you're in. Um, and this really wasn't going to fly. So with everyone feeling kind of pushed to their limits, the crew feels that there too much is put upon them. Heard and Cameron feel like they have time and budget constraints and don't really understand how the crew can behave so comfortably and nonchalantly, like this isn't something urgent and they should be pressed and stressed just like Cameron and Heard are. Cracknell stands up for the crew and says, look, people are overworked. Uh, The working conditions are, are not to our standards and we don't have any days off. This needs to change without being there you can't really say what's what. Um, I can understand being in that position that really sucking but when you're an American crew and you are used to American culture is kind of used to overworking and doing um, your job especially in filmmaking a particular way and yeah it's not going to gel and it certainly didn't here. Um, Cracknell was fired and as soon as he was fired the Crew walked out, and the production of Aliens had a mutiny on its hands.
1: Hearing this kind of stuff, it's like you wonder how this movie even came out as good as it did. Yeah, right. Because uh, you have to take into consideration too. This was a huge movie. They had three stages, uh, two stages for different special effects scenes, and then a stage that ha- had like a lot of the action sequences that had that included the actors. And so Cameron's, like, running from stage to stage, trying to deal with all these logistics, trying to answer technical questions. Meanwhile, the whole time, he's got, like, a crew that just, like, loathes him. He's still managing to get footage shot, continue to work with the special effects team to, like, you know, make sure things are, like, on schedule and working. It's really kind of, like, crazy to me how well Cameron is able to, again, compartmentalize all of this stress and all of this insanity And still able to look ahead and say, no, I'm at the end of the day, I'm still like I'm forcing myself to like I want to make this movie that's going to be awesome.
0: And it's hard to say in anything other than hindsight, you know, if we were all just on the same page and wanted to create this vision, because I I know from hearing stories from Galen Hurd and James Cameron that. The, the work that the British crew did on ev- everything that they did was impeccable, like some of the most top-notch work um, that they'd ever seen, and certainly even in the future, like they they were experts. But the lack of respect was the problem. If everyone had just been on board um, in the beginning, probably none of this would have ever happened. But with this mutiny on their hands, Heard describes this as one of the probably most difficult thing she's had to deal with in her entire professional career. So something had to change. Conversations needed to be had. And one person that did step in, I mean, not like as a big to-do, but stepped in as kind of the person between the crew and Cameron. She knew some of the crew from um, previous Alien, um, was Sigourney Weaver. And stepped in and talked to Cameron and heard. And I I feel like she's probably the only person that could bridge that. I'm not really clear on how she talked Cameron down or got them to maybe rethink firing Cracknell. Um, but it seems like it came down to Sigourney and Gale Ann Hurd to facilitate this apology that Cameron would give the crew and say, look, this movie is going to be amazing We do have to work together. I know that this is very stressful for everyone. And I know that I've been a giant a-hole. But I'm apologizing. Um, I really want this to work. And it was kind of like the only time that the crew had seen him be an actual human and show any type of... I wouldn't go as far as to say warmth, but to show any type of emotion, I wouldn't say desperation either, but something bordering on that, that something other than just inhuman asshole behavior. And I don't think that there was an ultimatum given about hiring back Cracknell, but that's what they did. And hiring him back is what got the crew back on board. And with that, what divided everyone in the first place ultimately is what brought them back together um, and thinking that, okay, we just need to put this aside and just get this immensely difficult project done and under our belt. And it's kind of like thanks to Sigourney and I think Galen Hurd.
1: And what James Cameron learned a valuable lesson that day after talking <laughs> to the crew and showing his appreciation, which um, so many managers uh, in this world should take note that uh, a little thanks and appreciation goes a long way, longer than you think it would. Once the crew felt respected, things started moving smoothly. Um, though there was still a long road ahead. There was a this was a very technical shoot. There was a lot of moving parts as far as like creating this whole universe, this whole world of these aliens and this colony uh, set that they're at, um, that they're spending the majority of the time in the movie. in. and thankfully, once. You know, things were smooth out with the crew. Cameron could focus 100 percent on making this movie uh, what it is.
0: And luckily, one department that never got any guff from James Cameron uh, was headed by Stan Winston, who was in charge of all the special effects, visual effects. And that was because Stan Winston had worked with Cameron before and didn't really have... A problem with him and respected his vision, knew exactly what he was like already, but kind of served as the buffer. So luckily, that was one department to start with. And yeah, let's get into some special effects and everything that makes aliens what it is.
1: And a lot of this stuff, uh, Stan Winston was able to work out before they went to England, you know, in his own Workspace, he was able to figure out structurally how to make some of the mechanics work. They obviously already had like a blueprint of some of the stuff, like the face huggers and the big alien. They wanted to keep some of the look of the original film, but also bring something new in so the audiences had something um, new to see to look forward to. And this idea of there being like tons of these other aliens and like eggs hatching and um, another bigger chest bursting scene uh a queen yes a queen not to get into the whole big debate of like again like practical and cgi and all that stuff but i've watched this movie multiple times in the last few weeks and the the effects do still really really hold up some of these effects are like very simple like uh watching some of the behind the scenes uh, special effects documentary you know them like Pulling a face hugger by a string, and then doing some reverse camera, old school reverse camera techniques. James Cameron realizing that these scenes can be put together in a way where you're not going to see strings, you're not going to see all the hidden effects, and that it's going to come together and look uh, like a seamless action scene. Because there's probably like five or six pretty big set pieces here where oh, we yeah, have easily we have actors. Um, interacting with with the aliens, and a lot of what happens in the later Alien films, where they were Cameron was still using the lesses more. Um, we're not going to show this thing nonstop. Uh, I think that's what made Alien so scary and terrifying. You know, once we get to some of the other sequels, we're starting to see these aliens so much on screen more than the actors that you don't. They just I don't know. The more I see a monster in any monster movie, the less scary it becomes. Cameron visualized this movie as like very dark and very gritty. And the style of this movie is different from Alien and it is much more um, an action movie. There's a lot of guns and that kind of special effects going on and mechanical special effects uh, and explosions that, uh, you know, wasn't needed in the first movie because the first movie is more insulated and it's very, a little more intimate. You know, the crew. Has known each other for a while. Um, this one, we have this like pumped up marine crew that has to be led by someone that they just, you know, are introduced to Ripley. When they have their big meeting in the beginning, she really doesn't offer too much information. This is like the worst thing that anyone could possibly face, and immediately they're like, "Okay, let's go kill this thing."
0: I love the way that that's set up though, because it it, it shows the attention to the depth of a character because she's traumatized. I mean, this to her, this thing that happened on her previous ship was like three days ago. So in trying to impart like, no, this thing just killed my entire crew and you guys don't care. It's obvious that Cameron's really trying to show like Ripley is like, I'm talking to people that don't care, but I I don't know how else to impart this information that we're all going to friggin die unless you pay attention. But, um, yeah, I, lo- I love the setup for that scene. You and pretty much everyone else who loves this movie, the sequence between Ripley in the power loader suit and the queen is iconic. Like, it's a, it's an incredible scene. I loved learning that in that power loader suit, that it is a giant muscle-bound dude that's in that and Sigourney's basically standing on the tops of his feet so they're working kind of in tandem also with the queen every movie that we talk about there's there's so much um about creature construction and so much you know how how they come up with um like the, the concept of the alien had had been around but the queen was a whole new thing this was a 14 foot puppet and ended up being something that was controlled. I think it took up to 14 to 16 people to control it. Like the, the head was on hydraulics. It had a steering wheel, you know, um, the neck was neck and face were, um, all controlled by hydraulics. Her legs were on rods. Um, and just being puppeted by this many people at once. I mean, it's wacky to think about like, and, and you see it on screen and you don't see the strings. You don't see any of this moving. And the way that she moves is, spider bug-like and looks completely natural in this thing that is not anything that we've ever seen before. That scene is just one of my favorites. Also, if you ever notice the queen, her teeth. You notice this, Justin? Her teeth are different than your, your typical minion. Uh, your typical minion, like these other fiery, beastly creatures that are metallic teeth. Hers are translucent. What's that about? I love it. It's all
1: those little weird details.
0: Yeah. Even with the face huggers, like they altered them a little bit. You know, they the the original ones in Alien were made of, you know, horseshoe crab and oyster and like grossness, like realness. And even those are slightly altered and how they are and just the, the adaptations that they added, um, to make everything look different are just um pretty fascinating.
1: I feel like they still stuck with the whole uh, making everything really slimy looking. Slimy like and like wet. kind of yeah.
0: wet and oddly, uh, I'm not off base here. Oddly sexual, like there's yeah. there's yeah, some a little bit there's there's some there's some stuff going on there. Also with this power loader and queen scene, you might not even notice that with the um, actual you know real size Sigourney and 14 foot puppet um, that there are miniatures of both of these put into the same scene, and you're not going to be able to tell. I. I even knowing that, going back and looking at it, I can't really pick it out. It happens so fast. The cuts are just like impeccably done. Um, but those miniatures are just one example of the myriad of, of scenes with miniatures using forced perspective and like that uh, foreground. Like in, in the original Alien, they used a lot of map paintings. And in this one, it was a lot of a whole soundstage that was built at a, a smaller scale, so it was just a giant miniature set. But it's kind of like the, the blending of Ridley Scott's world of using those map paintings and then kind of transitioning over to something that's the same kind of vibe, but something that Cameron was very familiar with because of where he originally came from and uh, what he was most familiar with, the tools um, that he was most familiar with.
1: And speaking of those matte paintings, uh, one of the things that Cameron really wanted to emphasize in Aliens was he had said in a lot of science fiction movies... You know, they would use rear projection, or they would use they would move the camera around when they're showing a ship moving. But he said when they would cut to the inside of the window looking outside of the ship, that would just be a still matte painting, and there was no movement. And he didn't like that, so he wanted to use rear projection and move the camera around so that that way it matched the outside of the ship. And so he utilized that several times in Aliens. And again, that's not going back to talking about using these sort of like primitive effects uh, and camera effects, these, these are, had been used for years and years, but Cameron knows that technique very well. And so he was able to use it in a way that's like more seamless and that was going to help make the universe realistic versus um, it looking like sort of like a cheesy camera effect.
0: You know, what you just said reminded me of another really cool effect when the uh, ship takes off with Bishop Sigourney, uh, Newton Hicks. They think they've escaped. Um, the mushroom cloud that they leave behind is is cotton and fiberglass, illuminated with a light bulb underneath. And we have this miniature ship taking off. You would never know that. It looks so flawless. Just how that's done. I'm not. I'm not sure what exactly that's called when you have like two miniatures working on top of each other like that. But it's a. Um, it is a really cool scene. And and seems relatively simple and also another simple effect of a mirroring that they use to uh, it's in the very beginning i don't know how many marines we have in total in the beginning before they start getting picked off but everybody wakes up from their their hypersleep pod and it looks like it's just an endless line of these pods but it's really a couple mirrors that are set up to look like it's an endless line. And that was another great money-saving trick that Cameron's crew came up with.
1: I think it's pretty cool that Cameron used all these sort of like cheap B-movie tricks that mm-hmm. he used uh, on Roger Corman movies and, and brought him to like a huge studio, like super real looking miniature model, but then utilizing some of these little tricks that he picked up along the way. Yeah. And consistently in a lot of Cameron's movies and what I think makes good science fiction movies is his use of saying, you know, all these tools and weapons that these guys are using, they look like something that would exist in the future that's similar to something that we have now. Because essentially most technology is like something that we had before, but it's like there's an advancement made. And so like the little welder tool that they use in the it, throughout the movie where they're opening stuff and closing it back up, it's like a little handheld, like, you know, they can open... Anything that's like steel and metal and then seal it back up really tight. And the gunnery pack that uh, Vasquez is using, it's like almost like wraps around her whole body. All these little props and weapons and tools makes this universe feel real.
0: And the operators of a lot of those weapons and really the aspect of aliens that keeps us grounded is the entire cast, giant cast, behind this movie. So let's go to another clip and we'll come back and we'll talk about it.
1: Well, that's great. That's just fucking great, man. Now what the fuck are we supposed to do? We're some real pretty shit now, man. you finished?
0: All right. We're not gonna be leaving now, right? I'm sorry, Newt. You don't have to be sorry. It wasn't your fault. That's it, man.
1: Game over, man. It's game over. The fuck are we gonna do now? What are we gonna do? Maybe we could build a fire, sing a couple of songs, huh? Why don't we try that? We better get back, because it'll be dark soon, and they mostly come at night. Mostly. We talked quite a bit about Sigourney Weaver when we did Alien, so we'll, you know, scoop past Sigourney. Um,
0: Not like she has anything to do with yeah, the movie yeah. or I anything. Yeah, I mean, we've only know? talked about her like a hundred <laughs> times on this
1: podcast. It's still crazy to me that the studio was like, eh, do we need Sigourney Weaver's character for this movie? I think she's the main reason why this sequel is as good as it is. You know, oh, I think yeah. if they would have went with a completely different lead, that it just wouldn't have the the same strength that it does. No way. And the cast that, that they surround her with is really, really great. I'm glad that Michael Bean is in this movie, you know, that he had the one, two, three with James Cameron, and that necessarily wasn't going to happen. I didn't realize this till just recently that he wasn't even cast in Aliens.
0: Yeah, I was not aware of that either, um, that originally the character of Hicks was played by James Remar. Some of you might know him best as Dexter's dad in the Showtime series, Dexter, or Samantha's on-again, off-again boyfriend in Sex in the City. Of course, we did an episode on the Warriors. He's a prominent character in that movie. And
1: you know, I want to say this is like relatively new information because whenever we were doing the uh, research for this, even on those other old documentaries that came out, the making of Aliens, Michael Bean says that he... Replace somebody, but there's really no discussion on who it was or what happened. And then Netflix recently put out an episode of the movies that made us uh, on Aliens, and James Remar is interviewed in it. And he starts the interview up, and then immediately I was like, "Wait a minute, James Remar's on Aliens!" (laughs) And then I was it made the connection like, "Whoa, yeah, okay, so it was it was originally James Remar who was cast, and they started shooting with James Remar, and then he got busted with drugs." In his like hotel room. Yeah. And uh, said that he's gone sober since, um, cleaned himself up, but he felt really bad. He got fired uh, because he did, I think he ended up going to jail. Like they arrested him and took him to jail. Yeah. And Cameron called Michael Bean and said, Get on the plane, get over here. We need you to shoot in like two days. And so he didn't know the character. He shows up two days later, puts on the uniform that, James Remar had been wearing and just picks up. And it's that's crazy. I mean, talk about dedicated actor to, you know, probably only got the maybe he got to read the script on the plane, but probably not, you know.
0: It is pretty wild. Gail Ann Hurd said she called him on a Friday and he was on a plane on Monday. I think one of her questions was, How's your passport? Is that ready to go? Because we got to get moving.
1: There's several scenes in, in Aliens where it is James Remar's back cuz they'd already shot certain scenes and they didn't want to have to reshoot them so they found scenes where they could use of him walking away and then they just shot the front of Michael Bean for a few scenes that they didn't have and then you know he was in the rest of the movie um, thankfully they had they were only like 2 weeks in a shooting that would have been a travesty if they were like almost completed or halfway through. And I mean, how do you even deal with something like that?
0: I don't think you can.
1: James Remar could have ruined aliens like he could have like potentially. I'm sure that probably weighed on him like good grief. Hicks is like through the whole movie.
0: Yeah, Hicks makes up the the family kind of triad that there is between he and Sigourney and Newt. Uh, he's totally main character. He makes it out. I cannot imagine. And also, there's, I mean, I love James Remar as an actor, but Michael Bean has a completely different vibe. Not that he's softer necessarily. He's certainly chiseled and very handsome, but I don't know, it feels uh, like a smoother transition or a, a smoother like uh, kinship that he yeah. and Ripley would have more so than James Remar. I mean, what am I basing that on, on vibe and appearance? Yeah. I don't know, but <laughs> I mean, that's what it feels like to me.
1: But I'm really happy that they went with Michael Bean and, again, having this one, two, three through the 80s working with being the main guy in Cameron's movies. And uh, another main guy in Cameron's movies, uh, Bill Paxton, who had a bit part in Terminator, uh, went on to be in Titanic and True Lies. James Cameron really loves Paxton. They seem like they have a good friendship.
0: <laughs> and these two, going back to you know being friends as far as uh, Roger Corman's film school, like th- this goes back a long way. And when Cameron was writing Aliens, he actually ran into Paxton at an airport, and Paxton was like, hey, what are you working on? And Cameron says, I'm actually writing the sequel to Alien. And Paxton, as you would imagine, a guy like Bill Paxton, says, you know, hey, write me a good part. And six months later, he does go to audition for him and not thinking that he's going to actually get the part. I think I heard him say numerous times, your friends are always the last people to hire you. And while that wasn't the case, although he did think he bombed the audition, Cameron called him up and offered him the part. And just for you trivia folks out there, Paxton turned down Police Academy 3 to be in Aliens. I think that was a good call. And Bill Paxton, i he's taken a long time to grow on me. I'll say that. In Aliens, specifically, when I was a kid, he was never my favorite. And now, years later, and many viewings after, I really see the character of Hudson as the audience. For instance, um, in his death scene, that's when I feel like the ground has just been ripped out from underneath me. That's when I have no idea what's going to happen. How are we ever going to make it out of this situation? And it's because Hicks is the one that you identify with. He's freaking out. He's kind of a blowhard a little bit. Bill Paxton is always great at being a blowhard. But once his character eats it, you're like, "Uh, well, no one's going to make it out of this.
1: When I used to watch this as a kid, he just seemed like the goofy character. I mean, I always mm-hmm. liked him. But watching Aliens now, it's clear his character is so essential because he is the audience to us. And when he's so confident in the beginning and so cocky, but then ends up being the one who's like super scared, it totally ups the stakes and it makes the movie that much more scary because you're like, oh man, this guy was not scared of anything. And he was like ready to charge in with his guns. And now he's totally freaking out and like, we're going to die. Yeah. And in a lot of action movies, you know, the secondary characters, tough guys like that, they never get scared. So you're never really scared for them because if they're not worried, the audience isn't worried. Um, and Cameron, I think, is good at doing that. Is like having like a central character like show fear and like be unsure of that they can handle this situation.
0: Another tricky thing that Cameron does is take a character who you feel like should be scared and make them one of the bravest out of them all. And that comes in a little package by the name of Newt, played by Carrie Henn.
1: I think as most Hollywood directors would say, uh, it's risky just having a child actor in a movie. You know, it's hard to get them to perform. They're not always the most professional of actors with a lot of experience. They can only shoot so some, some many hours in a day legally. And Cameron not, not only uses a kid, but like puts a kid in an action movie in some very terrifying <laughs> sequences you know especially when you have really good actors around someone who just doesn't have the experience it's going to stick out good on Cameron, you know good on the casting uh, of this to find somebody who really did a great job and it's nuts to me that uh carrie Henn is this is her only movie she just did this and that was it
0: yeah to not pursue acting after doing a movie like aliens that's a bold move and she was actually one of the members of the British cast that were that were used in this film. And 3,000 actors of the um, British actors' equity had to be auditioned before they could even go to North American actors. And one of the most interesting things I heard when Gayle Ann was talking about casting for a young role like this was that so many child actors that they auditioned were commercial actors. And every time they delivered a line... They would smile at the end and, oh my God, can you imagine playing Newt and, you know, you deliver the lines that she, I mean, that girl doesn't crack a smile at all. And and Carrie Henn had no professional training, hadn't been in even a school play. But in the end, that's what served her so well and what landed her the role.
1: And that's that's funny to me that all these kids were like, They're so used to smiling in commercials and smiling (laughs) real big. And so it, it was a perfect choice to find someone who didn't have like all these sort of like trained in and habitual things, um, that they had been doing her characters, like her family's been wiped out. She's been living at this colony alone while these things are lurking around. And I think she delivers one of the most scary lines in the movie is that, you know, we should, uh, you know hide pretty soon they seem to come out m- more in the evenings and <laughs> just psychologically you're just like god you know she's been like totally like locked away and in the beginning it seems like it could be annoying it's like oh man now they got this kid and she's like running around and like isn't speaking but then they show that there's a bond between her and and Ripley i i i really like the new character i think that it's uh it also shows another side of ripley like it um gives her a reason to fight and she has maternal instincts kick in and you know she wants to protect Newt from you know especially after all that she's been through if Newt can survive this then at least maybe we'll make up for this entire colony it's been like completely like annihilated from these aliens
0: and also the daughter that she didn't get to watch grow up that has since died since she was in fifteen seven years of hypersleep the other thing that i can't help but notice about newt and the sequel to aliens ripley has to go back for newt she's she's escaped newt's been captured she's in a cocoon she's got to go back for her just like she did for jonesy It's the same kind of evolution of this mother instinct, which is awesome that Cameron keeps that train rolling because it is something that is so persistent throughout the franchise. Most obviously, you know, because it is the xenomorph, the alien is the, you know, it impregnates you and gestates and, you know, that there's that theme. But the whole undercurrent of two mothers fighting, that being the alien and Ripley, um, I just love that theme, and I love that it gets brought back around. Jonesy, the cat, is left safely back at home, but uh, we're we're left to save Newt.
1: And I keep going back to Cameron here, like referencing his script writing, because I do think it's undervalued a lot of times. We've seen so many terrible sequels where there's just like winks and fan service and all kinds of stuff. And And granted, this was a different time when this movie came out. They weren't just trying to do fan service but bringing something back that we've seen in the other movie and Cameron does that with the the synthetic of Bishop and you know in the first alien we see that this has been a very evil character and so when it's introduced that there's a synthetic Ripley's immediately like pissed off and like <laughs> keep that thing away from me and it's
0: awesome how like angry yeah, she I mean, is very, immediately I mean, just
1: disturbed <laughs> and it's a very Cameron move to take a character who was evil in the first one and then flip it around and make them good uh you know in the sequel kind of like he did with the terminator in one and two it is a cool thing to not have him be evil and that essentially like help ripley at the end and also you feel uh when he gets like ripped apart um it does, even though it's a synthetic it's still like there's like an emotional drive there that's pretty graphic and uh, awful yeah awful awful scene Um, but Lance Hendrickson who had a bit part in Terminator and someone also who's friends with Cameron and Lance Hendrickson is like he's like the king of B-movie sci-fi yeah I mean he's just like relentlessly been in so many of these sci-fi movies and when you see interviews with him he seems like you know he's like hey you know i'm happy that i have this life and he's been in some really awesome movies and some just really like grade z bad bad (laughs) grade z in aliens he's really great and i think he does have that very um calm like his the way he speaks is like very calming uh he he be very warm, but also very cold. I think it's the best version of any time that they've done a synthetic in the Alien franchise. He's he's put in the best performance.
0: Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because I, I totally feel that Lance Hendrickson is the best version of a synthetic or robot in the Alien franchise. Ian Holm as Ash in, in the original is superb compared to Lance Hendrickson. And maybe it's, you know, the evolution of the the synthetic. And even Lance Hendrickson, you know, says, oh, I'm not surprised. That version was, was flawed. Um, he seems more robotic. And Lance Hendrickson, like you said, the right balance of warm and cold. But he still feels, you know, not completely human. Maybe it's his baby ashen white skin, too, that adds to that.
1: Yeah. And also, too, I think that Ian Holmes' version of the synthetic is feels almost like homage to Hal in two thousand and one. Yes. Whereas the Lance Henriksen version feels like its own thing. It's like this new model that is, you know, can we
0: trust it? Can we not? And for being such a clean cut character, even though a synthetic, uh, Henriksen is is pretty rough around the edges, a little primitive, and he's a tough dude. And Pretty much the exact opposite of who he would frequently ride to work with um, while filming, which was Paul Reiser, who played Burke. For a lot of fans of Aliens, Paul Reiser's the one that sticks out like a sore thumb. He does to me, but I like that he does. He doesn't fit. He's not supposed to fit. He's clearly the villain. So when I'm watching Aliens and it dawns on me that, oh yeah, Paul Reiser is in this. It's not like, it's the guy from Mad About You. Like, oh, no, it's this total a-hole that reveals who he truly is, that he's a scumbag that would rather throw any of these Marines straight in front of him um, than actually have any balls behind him. But Paul Reiser does a great job.
1: I think he does a good job. He's the only thing in Aliens that I'm not the biggest fan of, and I I do fall in that category of the... (laughs) Yeah. And mainly because it feels very one-note. It's kind of like the one character where it's like, government is bad or like corporations are bad and it's like so just one note. Very Cameron though. Yeah, very Cameron. But you make a character that despicable, it's a satisfying when they die, you know, Mm -hmm. so it's like one alien kill that, you know, you're almost kind of rooting for like, but and I'm glad too that um, they don't spend a enormous amount of time with him doing the double cross you know, it's it's kind of dealt with pretty quickly in, in the movie. We don't have it be, like, in the third act, like, stretching out that long. So I think it's, you know, he's in, he's out.
0: And really, he never confesses to anything. It's only his anxiety sweats that he tried to make Ripley and Newt these carriers so he could smuggle this alien back to the company that they work for.
1: Yeah, locking him in that room is pretty effed up.
0: Oof. God, I mean, that's when when everybody else realizes that's what happens. It's like, yeah, we should off this guy. Yeah. Totally. There really are so many people to talk about in this ensemble cast. I mean, Mark Ralston, who plays Drake, totally wonderful. Apone, Al Matthews, man, you didn't last long. And for being an actor who is the only guy with actual military experience, it does kind of suck for you <laughs> you didn't make yeah. it longer.
1: It does come across, though, that he really is... Uh his military experience. He's very believable.
0: Um, Gorman, William Hope. I'm surprised you made it as long as you did, but your death scene was with, I'd say one of the most beloved Marines of, of this entire ensemble. And that was Vasquez played by Jeanette Goldstein.
1: She's one of the more memorable characters in the movie. She kind of predates the the pumped-up version of Linda Hamilton in Terminator 2. You know, this is 1986, so it's like generally you, you can only have one strong female lead in the movie. <laughs> and, you know, Cameron is able to squeeze in a second one because he's Cameron. And he's—why can't there be a strong female lead in an action movie?
0: Clearly, her character— I mean, it wasn't written for because Cameron wrote it, but I mean, normally that character would be a man. But the way, that, the way that she's written, the camaraderie that she has with everyone else, it is so inclusive that it doesn't feel, I mean, aside from like some one-off jokes that are, she razzes people back just as much as Hudson or Drake gives her any guff, she serves it right back to him.
1: And Cameron used her again for Terminator 2 as uh, John Connor's foster mom and she looks so different in that movie.
0: I completely forgot that she was in that until you just said it. Before we close out the cast, real quickly, in case there were any questions, because this is a super gun heavy, military heavy action movie, all of the actors, aside from Sigourney Weaver, Paul Reiser, and Lance Hendrickson, and of course Newt, uh, they all went through like two weeks of rigorous training on how to hold a weapon um, with special forces officers there's definitely an air of legitimacy uh, throughout the whole picture so I think that you know there's sometimes you can watch some action movies and it does seem a little I don't know clunky sometimes it is not that um, in aliens and yeah I'd say I'd say two weeks of of training yeah th- that'll whip you into shape
1: and if you want to see a big difference like if you really are a fan of 80s b-movies like or C movies, which I can get into sometimes, (laughs) uh, watching those now, it's like, man, you really do see the clunkiness of like, they gave no training to someone who's never held a gun and it just doesn't look like believable or menacing. It just makes the scene. It kind of takes you out of it. And this is a movie where, you know, you have the top tier version of having people look like they know how to use all this equipment.
0: Yeah. Sigourney Weaver, who was notoriously very anti-gun and man, finding out that she didn't really realize how gun-heavy the movie was because she doesn't read the stage directions in the script. Hearing that afterwards, you're like, oh my God, this movie is all guns. But it, it took her a little while to come around. That She actually suggested to Cameron, does Ripley have to have a gun? He's like, yeah, she has to. But she came around and I mean, it, it's obvious that it's needed in the plot you know
1: i love when there's interviews uh, it was like one of the documentaries we watched there's like yeah. interviews of her talking about her stance on guns and <laughs> yeah. then oh uh, yeah you know i don't really like them and it's like it cuts the bill packs and he's like oh man i love it <laughs> you know he's like yeah. i used to shoot guns when i was younger yeah,
0: yeah there's definitely a, a a difference when it comes to a uh, comfortability with guns in this movie
1: earlier we were talking about michael bean how he was hired very quickly. He didn't have much time to prepare, had to kind of just jump right in and do this movie. Well, James Horner is the Michael Bean of the music composition <laughs> world. It was the same situation for him. Uh, he didn't really know anything about the movie, was hired very, very quickly and given very, very little time to prepare a score for a huge, you know, Hollywood release. And granted, James Horner, one of the greatest composers of all time not insane that he was able to come up with something so great for the movie but you know the time crunch and the circumstance surrounding it it is a pretty amazing feat
0: and that time crunch just kept getting smaller and smaller like it was six weeks from the release date and horner had not seen a cut of the movie or started writing the score you know let alone like started recording we hadn't even got to that point um, he knew the general concept, and for someone that is uh, as talented as he is, he can come up with a melody, but without knowing particular beats. Um, I mean, you're not good. You're going to have an incomplete score. Eventually, uh, a cut does come around to him. He does score it, not having the music printed or anything for musicians to perform it, uh, but working up to that. And two days before recording is set to go there are massive edits and changes to the film which is going to completely alter your entire score and Horner the the drift I got was that he's a very together controlled guy but a perfectionist like Cameron described this experience as inhuman to expect someone to be able to make such massive edits in two days and be able to get all of this music together uh, write it send it to copyists, have it out for musicians to perform it. I mean, it's just, it's nuts. And he said this to Cameron and Hurd, and I got to give it to Gayle Ann Hurd for being such a ball buster. She said something like, well, if you can't do it, we'll find somebody who can. And James Horner, again, very controlled, says something like, I'd like to meet that person, whoever can do that, because... I don't know one person that could. It was like five or six days when this needed to be complete. Somehow, the dude cranked it out. I don't know how or how much hair he pulled out of his head to make this happen, to record it, and it be such a masterpiece that it is. But like, there's kind of two climaxes in Aliens. And the music in that, if that doesn't rev your heart up and make you just, like, want to pass out from, like, the building anxiety and tension, I mean, I don't know what will. And that piece specifically is used in multiple action movie trailers, like, subsequently. So many, so many
1: trailers that have used that. (laughs) Like something's about to explode. Yeah, you're like, oh
0: up. my God, what's going to happen? It really is one of the best scores that I feel like has resonated with me that I know it so well. And for a film score that sometimes they're understated, sometimes they stick out. But for one to have such an emotional impact and to be written on a deadline.
1: I mean, what a talent. This is a James Horner's version of like cranking something out. Like, <laughs> Yeah, I just like cranked this out. This like... <laughs> You know, and and his relationship with Cameron uh, clearly didn't sour. He went on to score Titanic and win the Academy Award and, you know, several other awards for compositions.
0: I think they needed some time apart because it was a little, like, I don't think anyone was mad or any bad blood, but it was, like, certainly two perfectionists were like, I don't know what you're going to do, but we're going to make this work out. Um, But, yeah, coming back around, that shows how pro they are and that they know that they can trust someone with their level of of intelligence and and follow through. Well, the final theatrical cut of this movie uh, ended up being just a little over two hours, which... Luckily, with so many things running on such a tight schedule, the first rough cut edited by Ray Lovejoy ended up being pretty close to what Cameron wanted, which I would think would be such a relief for someone editing this movie together when you're on a time crunch. But the main reason that the studio wanted it to be, you know, not too shy over two hours, and I guess this is a pretty common thing, was to maximize the amount of times a movie can be shown in a theater in one day. It makes total sense, um, but when you also understand and if you're somebody who's seen the extended edition and maybe we'll get to that but when you know what was left on the cutting room floor you're like man this could have gone a second longer and I it wouldn't have felt long in the tooth.
1: It's crazy to me that just like just over two hours was like lengthy for an action movie uh, (laughs) compared to today where uh, the new Batman movie uh, that came out is like Clocked in at like three hours and eight minutes, and most of the Marvel movies are like 245, you know, 250. It's like nuts. And this movie doesn't feel long to me at all. I think a good length for an action movie is like, you know, 1, 130, 145, Ooh. depending on how uh, simple the plot is and the setup of the characters. But with Aliens, it's like We already know Sigourney Weaver's character. It's like we know who Ripley (laughs) is. You know, we don't need to like spend an hour setting her up like they do with every Spider-Man or like Batman movie. It's just like, don't we all know these characters? Why do we have to spend the first hour like relearning about the character again? But I think that's what's great about this movie is that it just kind of kicks into overdrive right away instead of uh, reiterating information, you know, that we've already learned in the first movie.
0: This movie really just does not stop at all.
1: And speaking of the release of this movie, uh, this movie was a pretty big hit. Definitely a big hit overseas as well. But in uh, North America, it was uh, n- the seventh highest grossing film of 1986. The seventh? I know. Isn't that crazy? I would have thought that it was in the top three. And so I was, you know, had to look this up. Yeah. And man, 1986 was a weird year for hit movies. Oh, I can't wait to hear uh, this. The number one highest grossing film, no big surprise for 1986, uh, Top Gun.
0: Okay, sure.
1: Number two, Crocodile Dundee, which I do remember that being like this gargantuan hit. It, for was, like, it was pretty big. Uh, yeah, and
0: I know that movie well.
1: But number three is a little surprising here, Platoon. Oof. Third highest grossing film in 1986. Yikes, that's dark. Then we go into, you know, we go into Sequel City here with uh, Karate Kid Part 2. Okay, followed understandable. Followed by Star Trek 4, you know, they had built it up. Okay. Still not the aliens yet. Before Aliens, though, sixth highest-grossing film in 1986. Okay. Back to School with Rodney Dangerfield.
0: I mean Dangerfield.
1: <laughs> made 90 million dollars at the North American box office, and then and then we get to Aliens.
0: Okay.
1: Uh, f- rounding out the top ten with The Golden Child, Ruthless People, which was a surprise to me. I mean, made it in the top ten. And, wow. Uh, tenth highest-grossing movie: uh, Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Very, uh,
0: wow, this order would be so different very, nowadays. Oh
1: yeah, it would all be superhero movies. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> um, or
0: sequels. I mean, all of these movies have have varying great degrees of merit, you know. But I just can't, I cannot believe Alien was number seven yeah. out of all of those. Wow.
1: I think we can agree that out of this top ten, mm-hmm. Aliens is the best movie of all these by by a great distance.
0: Out of all, I'm just, I'm just, I'm collating, as Ash would say, an Alien. Um, yes, completely. Yeah. Number one for me. Me too. <laughs> and even though it was only the seventh highest grossing movie of 86, it's still for a sci-fi, horror, war, combat movie. It was recognized by the Academy Awards and nominated for seven awards. Best visual effects, sound editing, sound mixing, original score, production design, film editing, and probably the the biggest surprise Uh, something that no one really expected, was Best Actress. Sigourney Weaver was nominated for Best Actress, and that's something that was unheard of for a sci-fi horror movie.
1: And Sigourney Weaver didn't win, but who did win? Uh, I I had to think about that for a second. Who won Best Actress in 1987?
0: That was Marley Matlin for Children of a Lesser God. A great actress. Yeah. Wonderful. Um, Just, you know, I don't know the last time I've talked about Children of a Lesser God.
1: I don't know the last time anyone's, I don't think anyone's ever mentioned that movie to me in the million film conversations that I've had.
0: Um, everyone that was nominated, though, in this category was, was wonderful that year. Um, Sigourney certainly, you know, ha- had to battle it out. But geez, Louise, it's no secret we're a fan of Sigourney Weaver on this podcast.
1: This seems like a good place to stop. We'll uh, come back to some aliens talk. We'll probably talk about those sequels, but let's get on with our picks of the week. Uh Lindsay, what was your pick again?
0: Well of course I went the Sigourney Weaver route and did a movie called Death and the Maiden.
1: I, I've said it before, but you've just been on a freaking roll here with a uh, Picks of the Week of movies <laughs> that I somehow managed to miss when they originally came out and I still haven't watched Death of the Maiden yet. I've got to get on this so I'm the most curious about what this movie's about. I didn't even look it up. I figured I'd just wait.
0: Oh till, really? Yeah, so okay. I'm
1: I'm Hearing this, as, this is as fresh to my ears as it is to anyone listening to this episode right now.
0: Okay. Well, you may not have seen this, but you saying in the beginning of the episode that this was an adult drama, that is completely accurate. This is a very, very adult movie. I remember being intrigued by this movie because, well, one, Sigourney Weaver, and two, I love movies which began as plays. They're usually a pretty simple setup, but with a complex backstory, intelligent dialogue, and usually allows the audience to figure out the motivations for characters in the initial exposition. In the case of this Sigourney Weaver deep cut, we've walked into a weighty situation. Finding a woman alone in her home, in the middle of the night, obviously upset, a little perturbed, she looks a little paranoid as she repeatedly peers out her window. Piece by piece, as any good play does, our main character, Paulina, is revealed. Her curious paranoia becomes intensified as she overhears a news report on the radio about someone being named the leader of a commission to investigate horrific crimes from a former non-democratic regime. Then the power goes out. Sounds like the setup for a horror film, right? Alone, seemingly frightened woman, riding a wave mixed with wine and feelings, a beach house, no neighbors, and now no power. This is somewhat of a horror story, just not the kind that you're used to. Paulina's husband, Gerardo, played by Stuart Wilson, returns home, out of sorts, having been given a ride home by a stranger after getting a flat tire. Paulina and Gerardo have some as-yet unidentified tension between them, revolving around what was overheard on the radio. Gerardo was named the person to head that investigative commission. But why does Paulina feel so betrayed? She's in so much pain, torment, and it's obvious to Gerardo— Though he validates her feelings, but his decision to accept this position does go against her wishes. What are we missing here? A little later in the night, the man who drove Gerardo home returns for a seemingly innocuous reason. As soon as there's a rapping at the door, Paulina hides in the closet. Gerardo answers. The camera stays on Paulina, who's taking in every breath, every sound, every word coming from that stranger's voice. A small giggle of disbelief comes out as she covers her mouth. Jeez, can this movie build tension or what? Let me just go ahead and break the news for you, because it's the entire reason for the majority of this movie. As she will later expound upon in painfully great detail, many years before, Paulina was held prisoner at the hands of the abusive regime that Gerardo has now been named the head of the investigative commission. And when she hears this stranger in the night's voice, there is no question in her mind that this is the person responsible for her weeks of torture. What unfolds in Death in the Maiden is Paulina taking this man, Dr. Miranda, captive and enacting some version of a trial, using her husband as an attorney liaison between the two parties. Dr. Miranda, played ominously too well by Ben Kingsley, clings to his innocence the entire time, Gerardo caught in the middle, and Paulina, who is shaken but confident and methodical in her decision-making. She's waited for this moment but never planned that it could happen. The charges, Paulina says at one point systematic beatings, electroshock treatments, multiple rapes while playing Death and the Maiden on a wobbly turntable with cheap speakers. I mean, it's just a, it's a rough time every time that she describes what happens to her. Sigourney plays Paulina with such conflicted depth and confidence, a blend of madness and giddiness, all stemming from this unalterable trauma she's experienced. I swear that that jawline for days on old Siggy has never looked stronger than in this movie. Written by an academic and human rights advocate, Ariel Dorfman, who also co-wrote the screenplay, Death and the Maiden pulls no punches in its graphic, real-talk language, but also leaves the audience questioning everyone. Both Paulina and Dr. Miranda are staunchly set in their positions, with attorney for the people, Gerardo, left not knowing what to think. Sometimes he leans one way, but feels conflicted because he doesn't fully understand the effect of his wife's trauma. Paulina plans to kill Dr. Miranda if he doesn't confess in this at-home version of a court trial. While you imagine this story unfolding, picture it set by mostly candlelight, adjacent lamps, single-beam flashlights, moonlight, all darkness outside in this lone home. The tension building inside is more palpable and prolonged than any awkward encounter most of us have ever experienced. Out of an immense respect for this story and the manner in which it's told, I just can't reveal the ending of this movie, but you have to see the entire movie through. How Sigourney reached the core of this character must have really weighed heavily on her because it is emotionally exhausting to experience it with her. The flawless vulnerability, strength, and madness encapsulated in a victim who spent every waking day affected by what happened to her. That's very real. It's difficult to imagine if you haven't lived through such a personalized trauma, but what Sigourney portrays gives such immense respect to women who have endured such anguish. Stuart Wilson, um, who I've always known best as the bad guy in Lethal Weapon 3, is a very serviceable conduit as the audience, conflicted in his emotions. And Ben Kingsley, between how his character is written and his ability to deliver dialogue with such a straight and leading manner, is absolutely chilling by the end of the film. It's movies like this which have impressed upon me the power of truly great acting. And in the hands of a director like Roman Polanski, he's always been able to hone in on building tension until an ultimate horrifying climax. I also learned that this movie was filmed in order of how the story goes. And I know that this happens occasionally, but for this one in particular, it seems like there's no other way. All of these actors must have been so spent after the production wrapped. The decision to have austrian composer Franz schubert's death and the maiden as the central musical element was also a smart move it brings us further into the world and reminds us of the horrors that paulina endured each time it was played during her weeks of captivity i don't know what works best in death and the maiden the performances or the tension building But no revenge will satisfy Paulina. And who knows how you'll feel at the film's climax, but to call this story simply powerful is an understatement. In a movie which bases itself in real-world conditions, how could anyone ever have closure in any satisfying fashion? So check this movie out while you can. It is streaming for free on Tubi and Crackle right now. Um, It's not for the kiddies. It's a very adult drama, um, and it doesn't get more guttural than this atmospheric, magnificent, and grossly underseen film.
1: Yeah, I really have to see this. I'm going to check it out before it leaves to be.
0: It's worth it. It's not an uplifting movie. Yeah.
1: <laughs> what a title, too.
0: It uh, leaves a lot of mystery yeah, in the off- title. Yeah, offers nothing. Yes. <laughs> Unless you're a fan of classical music. Yeah. All right, Justin, tell us about Rambo First Blood Part 2.
1: Though I hadn't seen First Blood Part 2, I don't think really since I was a kid. Once I started watching it, I was like, you know what? I've seen First Blood, but I haven't seen Part 2 and forever. If you haven't seen First Blood in a while, it's a really great movie, but it's more based in realistic drama. and James Cameron did the first draft of First Blood part two and I think he does what he does best. He took there's government corruption. Um, he made it less about the drama and more about the action and more about this character um, being more heroic and also had a secondary character be a strong female lead. But the setup picks up three years after First Blood. He's been in a work prison for about three years, busting up rocks, and his commanding officer, who is the person who helped get him out of trouble in the first movie, comes and says, hey, you know, there's a secret mission. They'll reinstate you. Do you want to be in this prison any longer? And so he said, you know, why don't you do this mission for us and hopefully they'll pardon you and you can won't have to go back to prison. And so they set up the this mission pretty quickly. His assignment is to go into Vietnam, sort of going back into enemy lines and checking to see if there's any POWs left. And like these POW camps, they you know, he's kind of shocked to find out like, oh, there's still people there. And he said, you know, go in. We just want you to take photos. We don't want you to do anything. So as soon as they set it up, Sylvester Stallone like gears up. And now we see the first time of Stallone, this version of Stallone. There's all these close-ups of his physique. This is like mid 80s Stallone where he's now competing with Arnold Schwarzenegger. But he gets there immediately. Things go south. The government's not expecting him to find any POWs. And when he does... Um, he's like, you know, I found, I found him, you need to come in and help. And they're like, Oh man, we don't want all this attention on us that we left soldiers there. So they basically aren't going to help them. They're not going, they, they, they canceled their mission on picking them up. They were supposed to pick them up in like two or three days. So this really pisses them off. His commanding officer didn't know about it. So he, he, he's like the, the Rambo hype man. The Colonel Trotman character played by Richard Crenna, he reminds me a lot of like uh, Donald Pleasant's Dr. Loomis. He's just, you know, he thinks of Rambo as like larger than life. Like he's he's a killing machine. You know, he's trained for this. Like you don't, you have no idea how much power he has. And so he's always kind of hyping him up. And in It's True to Life, uh, Rambo, essentially, you know, the, the next hour of the movie is him going in, getting these POWs and, and coming back for revenge. And this movie clocks in about 90 minutes and there's really very little time wasted. There's some really great action set pieces and it's a very simple story, but I think Sylvester Stallone does what he does best in this movie. And this was a wild year for Stallone. This was, um, this movie was an international success. It like broke all these records as far as like international movies and sort of was the, The starting ground of big, huge action movies doing better overseas than they do in America. But uh, in 1985, he puts out First Blood Part II and Rocky IV, both of which were huge international movies, made like $300 million each at the box office, and kind of cemented himself in one of the top-tier action movie stars. The movie was directed by George P. Cosmatos, who uh, worked again with Stallone and another one of my picks of the week, uh, Cobra. He also did prior to First Blood Part Two. he did a lower budget movie that's really cool with Peter Weller called Of Unknown Origin. It's a creature in a house type movie. Very worth your while and then he also directed the classic Western tombstone. So Rambo First Blood Part Two. If you haven't seen it in a while, I just I'd just start from the beginning, just throw on First Blood, go right into First Blood Part Two. I wanted to see Rambo three before we did this episode because I wanted to you know, have done the trilogy. Um, I didn't get to it yet. I have, I I suspect that that's the worst of them all. I did uh, see the last two Rambo movies. There's five of these movies, if you can believe it. I I, I haven't seen Rambo 3 in forever, so I I can't speak on that one. But at least four of the five, I can tell you, are worth your time.
0: All of the Sylvester Stallone movies I watched as a kid and have not revisited, but definitely part of my childhood and like looking up stills from this and the actors i'm like oh yeah totally i remember this happens in that scene but i can't tell you like th- the story by itself so i'm very happy to have this reminder
1: those are our picks of the week rambo first blood part two and death and the maiden here's your murray moment Because
0: I rarely wear underwear, and when I do,
1: it's usually something unusual. I think I need a root canal. I'm sure I need a long, slow root canal. You're gonna come and shake my monkey tree again? Oh, what does that old queen know? She didn't even show.
0: Hey, this is so structured. Is this hand shut? The flowing
1: robes grace, all striking. <sighs> that was fun.
0: Because we've been discussing one of the best sequels of all time, I thought it was a good idea to revisit another sequel with Sigourney and Billy. Duh, Ghostbusters 2. Whether you dig this sequel or not, what will always keep me coming back to this one isn't really the legacy of Ghostbusters, but more the relationship between and evolution of the characters I grew to love from the original. Sigourney's Dana Barrett fought off Billy's Peter Vankman right up until the very end of the movie. And in the sequel, we find them as estranged former partners. Dana now with a baby, and quick fun fact that was originally written as Vankman's kid, but was ultimately decided against. Um, but now Vankman is forcing his way back into her life crudely and passively with that kind of clunky charm attempting to woo her back. So let's take you back to the sequel and the playful harassing that Sigourney endured at the hands of Billy during the one and only date we ever witnessed between Dana Barrett and Peter Venkman. You diehards, you know the scene. Peter, if I had this kind of support on a 24-hour day basis, I could have myself whipped into shape by the end of this century. Dana, well, why don't you give me a jingle in the year 2000? Peter, why don't I give you a jingle right now? First of all, on a purely personal level... Peter's attempt at flirting is where I learned all my awkward, ineffective moves in the world of flirtation. Secondly, and more importantly, let's go behind the scenes of this one. You gotta crank it up a little, director Ivan Reitman says to Bill. You're still a court low. This is the last week of a 13-week shoot, and there's still so much to get done. The crew, Ivan, Sigourney, and Billy, have been at this scene for over eight hours, and the two stars are sweating in the brightly lit restaurant scene. The stage is set, and this is going to be the moment. Then out of nowhere, Billy stands up, waving his dinner napkin in the air. Correct me if I'm wrong, but isn't this Academy Award nominee Sigourney Weaver's last shot of the movie? Of course, by this point, Sigourney has been nominated for Best Actress, like we said, for Aliens in 87. And this particular year, Best Actress for Gorillas in the Mist and the same year, 1989, Best Supporting Actress in Working Girl. And all three of these movies we've now discussed on this podcast. Hmm. Leave it to Bill to get a chuckle from the crew and everyone who still just wants to get the scene over with, yet he's still continuing to stall. Apparently throughout the film's production, during technical delays and timeouts, Bill had been concerned with reminding the crew to not keep the Oscar nominee waiting. Ivan Reitman's got to placate to his star. You're right, Bill. It's her last close-up. Continuing to razz Sigourney, Bill says, I say if she blows this scene, maybe she doesn't deserve the awards. The crew boos back at him. Okay, okay. He corrects himself. She thrives on the pressure, he says. Then he leans over to Sigourney, who's just putting up with this playful harassment, and whispers to her, you know, you're not such a big deal when you're working with actors as tall as you are. Sigourney can't help but laugh at that one, especially when Bill follows it up with, "That's right, you can't work with Mel Gibson forever." Gibson, who starred with Sigourney in my Pick of the Week back in episode 87, The Year of Living Dangerously, clocks in at five foot ten and does kind of shrink when standing next to his six foot co-star. And admittedly, Sigourney does look more evenly matched with the six foot two Billy. Another quick fun fact, Sigourney's height always played against her in her early acting days, so this joke that Billy's making is considerably funnier because she's become such a huge success by this point. Ivan eventually gets everybody to settle down, including Billy, and he and Sigourney finish the scene out. The crew cheers, and Sigourney stands, spins, takes a bow to wrap her time on Ghostbusters 2. And as the cheering dies down, Bill just can't help himself for one more round of teasing his beloved co-star. He says loudly while staring at Weaver's chest, Is it just me, or can everyone see straight through Sigourney's dress? This desire to have Dana Barrett and Peter Venkman back together is something that has even persisted into the latest Ghostbusters installment, Afterlife, in an in-credits punch-in which kind of only appeals to us diehards. We know there's love here between these two characters, and really, between these two actors forevermore. If you haven't heard a previous Murray moment concerning Billy and Sigourney, please check out episode 18, The Ice Storm, uh, which was about a play the two did together in 2002 called The Guys. I was uh, a little tired when we recorded that episode, but the story is still a really good one, despite me sounding a little more off than usual. So many of these Murray moments in the early days, I wish I could go back and retell some of them.
1: I'm glad you're able to get a Ghostbusters 2 <laughs> Murray moment in here. It's been a while since I've heard any Ghostbusters talk from you.
0: Mm-hmm. I I was determined, bound and determined. Then I found this story, and yeah, great.
1: Well, thank you for that Murray moment. Of course. Well, we should close things out here pretty soon, but before we do, say goodbye. Uh, let's talk about those Alien sequels, just just very briefly. Mm-hmm. I think we've we talked about them a little bit when we did the Alien episode. But uh, I rewatched both the Alien Three and Alien Resurrection uh, before we did this episode, and I had never seen Alien Three the the edited version. Yeah, where the studio uh, they took David they asked David Fincher I think to recut it because I guess that was a big disaster. Like they recut the whole movie, and he like disowns it, and he even was just like. F off! I'm not gonna <laughs> go back to this movie. I just don't ever want yeah. it to be a part of my life again. So the, I guess they found his editing notes. I don't know how, but maybe they just making that up. But apparently they like yeah. cut recut the movie in the way that he originally wanted it. I guess now that he's became a big yeah you know respected influential director, they're like, hey, we should market this and we'll release this new version. But I think it came out in 2003. But I did watch that, and I do. I will say. I was never a hater of Alien 3. I always was fine with it. I know it's not the greatest uh, movie in the franchise, but um, I didn't mind it. And I do think that this new re-edit that they did, and it's not new anymore, but I do think that this re-edit that they did in 2003 is a better version of it. And I, I really enjoyed it. I think it's worth checking out. It's uh, You can find it on Vudu. You can rent it, or um, it's on the uh, Alien 3 Blu-ray.
0: I'm 100% with you. I love the recut version. I mean, the third one, it's much darker, completely different vibe. uh, But the recut version adds so much more in there that I I find very interesting. And it's not a waste of time. I'm not going to say what my one chief complaint is. It's something that's left out that was in the theatrical cut, like right at the very end. Kind of a bummer, but otherwise, ninety nine percent on board with Alien Three. In fact, I think it makes it a better movie to if you watch this version. Yeah, I do too. Now, Alien Resurrection, watching that one made me uh, do a little bit of ranking. In like story wise, we have to care about the characters and what they're going through. And Aliens, if you don't care about all of the Marines, obviously Ripley and Newt, then. You don't care about the movie, you know, um, but it is very much an ensemble piece. The first one is so much more distinctive. It's lonely and isolating and very limited amount of characters. You can't help but care about them. Four is the one where I don't really care about a lot of, of the main characters. I do care about Winona Ryder, who plays a, a yet again, a reimagining of a synthetic robot character but if I'm caring more about the rapists and murderers in the prison world of Alien 3 than I am Alien Resurrection yeah I'm gonna I'm gonna rank from it goes in order actually of of how I care about everyone in the franchise one two three four
1: I didn't like Alien Resurrection when it came out but uh, I was determined to rewatch it before we did this episode and man it, it was tough for me to get through that thing it's To me, it goes against everything that the first three movies built up. They they go totally kind of goofy with the Sigourney Weaver character. Uh, Tonally, it's strange. It goes from like weird humor um, to like super high drama, and uh, the last 45 minutes of the movie feels like I'm watching an episode of like a Joss Whedon sci-fi comedy you know, spaceship movie. You kind of are. Spaceship TV show. <laughs> yeah. Again, I just think it it doesn't connect to the other movies in a way of like if you're going to have Sigourney Weaver, in it, which I'm kind of surprised that she did the movie. Maybe it was just because they offered her like gobs of money. Probably. Um, because it just doesn't feel like an alien movie. None of the characters feel like an alien movie. The humor doesn't feel like an alien movie. And uh, the, the actual creatures you're showing the creature too much that it becomes less scary and the uh, swimming alien has got to be like the worst iteration of the alien in the franchise and as much as I've loved Winona Ryder and man we love her on this podcast I also think she's like the the worst version of a synthetic it's like she doesn't act like a synthetic when we find out she's a synthetic it's the worst part of the movie for me because (laughs) we have the guy go oh no bro I heard about these and he like starts like Saying all this exposition, which is supposed to explain why she's new. And it just, the whole thing to me was kind of a train wreck. And visually, it's kind of cool.
0: Yeah, uh, Jean-Pierre Genet's vision of this movie and his general aesthetic style, I like. That's not something that I have an issue with. But I agree with you that it doesn't fit within the alien world. The character of Ripley, her evolution of being a clone. Where else are you going to go by the fourth movie? Okay, I'll accept clone. Ripley, I don't have a problem with. I don't have a problem with the way the movie looks. The times that it goes super dark and like where she meets other versions of her clone, alien hybrid clone. I will admit I, I might get teary eyed in two specific scenes. Otherwise, it's yeah, I'm just watching something that's outside of the franchise. But I admire the attempt to make it different I'm still going to watch it. I'm still going to include it in in the quadrology of this, but I think anything after Aliens feels like it just kind of like lost a little bit of magic. And honestly, when Aliens 3 starts and Hicks is dead and Newt's dead, it's almost like you just feel like you just get sucked in the face because you just you spent all of Aliens going through this and Ripley escaped with this, you know, like kind of family situation. And then they're dead right at the beginning of three. It's just, it's a bummer to start out with. Yeah.
1: And Ridley Scott's went back to the alien well a few times with Prometheus. And then he did that uh, alien covenant movie, which was really just uh, kind of rehashed the first alien. I don't know. I,
0: yeah. I
1: couldn't, I didn't even want to rewatch it again for this because I, that's how little I cared about it the first time. And yeah. I did see that Hulu is doing an alien television series I'm going to keep my expectations low for that. I just don't know how much further you can go with this, you know, without yeah. just kind of, you know, starting from scratch, other than if you're just throwing the alien name on it in hopes that you'll get viewership, which, you know, marketing-wise is, is not a bad idea at all.
0: Justin, I know that we're wrapping this up, but I I got one more thing. Can, can I just say this one quick thing?
1: I say go for <laughs> it. Well, this is going to be a record-long episode for us.
0: Okay, so it just sprung to mind... Um, you said Joss Whedon, he wrote Resurrection. I mean, it was around the time when I was really getting into Buffy and, you know, there are certain catchphrases in Buffy the Vampire Slayer, the show, and there's a phrase that the character Faith says whenever, you know, she's talking, somebody's like, hey, you got that alligator in a headlock over there? You doing okay? And she's like, yeah, I'm five by five. It's such a well-known phrase if you like the show. I have no idea how many years ago it was that I figured it out, but Eventually doing a Google search, other people have noticed this too, that in Aliens, there's a part where Corporal Farrow, who's one of the pilots, is asked how I think her landing is coming in. And she says something like, we're in the pipe, five by five. And it's a line that stands out too in the movie. I have to believe, and I've never seen an interview where Joss Whedon, you know, say that he ripped off that line from Aliens, but I can't help but think he had to if You know the answer to this. Any gentle viewer out there, uh, you know the answer. Have you thought this too? Drop us a line. But it's one of those moments when, you know, you're a super fan of something and you see a connection. You're like, I don't see any other explanation.
1: If you do have an answer for that, you can contact us at don'tpushpawespodcast at gmail.com. You can also follow us on social media. We're on Facebook. We're on Twitter. We're on Instagram. And we also have a YouTube channel that has all of our old episodes. And you can also find those archived on our website at don'tpushpausepodcast.com. Until next time, I'm Justin Johnson.
0: And I'm Lindsay Reaper.
1: Thanks so much for listening.
0: Thank you, guys.